Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well. I'm fine. I am, uh, I'm in like sort of year 45 of lockdown, it feels as though. Uh, I, um, I had quite a good week. Uh, this week, I found out that The Good Place is nominated for an Emmy. In fact, we were nominated for seven Emmys. And so that is really exciting and cool because not only is it nice to be recognised, but it's also mostly that this show changed my whole life. You know, I got to America, I didn't know anyone, didn't have any agents or managers and didn't have a plan, thought I would just be a writer and finally found representation. They sent me for the Good Place audition knowing that I'd never acted before or at least not since school plays when I was nine. Um, And I guess I was so bold in the audition because I was so certain that I wouldn't possibly get it that there was no way on earth I would be allowed to act opposite Ted Danson having no fucking idea how to act and I think maybe Mike Sher mistook that for competence he mistook my confidence for competence and rather maniacally gave me the job and how much that has changed my life is just beyond words. The fact that I not only got to learn how to act from Ted Danson and I got to spend all that time with those amazing people and those great writers and Mike Sher himself and we made a show that really meant something and stood for something and you know it was about the message that we most need in the world right now which is that when people come from different backgrounds and different experiences and they have different personalities they put those differences aside so that communally they can get to a better place if ever there was a year where that message was important it's probably now and am I saying that the good place ending the entire series ending caused the pandemic not necessarily just pointing out bit of a coincidence that the good place finishes forever and then the world descends into fire and chaos so that's just a small theory I'm putting out there Um, but truly Being able to have so much fun at your job and do something that feels so meaningful and cool and it's a moral philosophy TV show that is a comedy and it's wrapped in dick and fart jokes and it has such a diverse cast and it doesn't fall into any of the traps of stereotypes. It was so cool and then to be able to use that as a springboard for all of my work with iWay and to be able to do this podcast and the Instagram and all of the activism that we have been participating in and supporting has just all of it came from fucking Tahani of all people Tahani uh so I I love that annoying stupid character uh I love her with all my heart I hated her when I first started playing but I learned a lot from her from playing her mostly what not to do But yeah, I thought I would just um, ramble at you about how grateful I am for The Good Place because it completely changed my life and it 
it allowed me to do things and see things and say things that I never thought were possible and completely rebuilt me as a person. Um, anyway, on to the podcast. More importantly, our guest today is Io Tillett Wright, who is an American author, a photographer, a TV host and an activist. And he takes me through, and I mean, there is no way that we had enough time to go through his entire life because it's truly one of the most extraordinary life stories I've ever heard but we crammed as much of it into this one tight episode as we possibly could and I just had my mind blown again and again and again as every minute went by. Aya has had such a unique life journey and story and has somehow overcome unimaginable hardship and and horror at times to become this incredibly stable, happy, loved up, successful beacon of hope and joy and and love. Io is so loving in all of his work. And so I'm excited for you to hear this. It truly is remarkable what he's been through. So please enjoy Io Till It Right. Welcome to Iway. How are you? Thank you for welcoming me and having me. I'm doing quite well, I think. That is reticent. (laughs) Why? I mean, there's a lot going on in the world right now. I don't know what you mean. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What happened? Did I miss something? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's a cough that uh some people have yeah. there's an awakening that others are having no mm. i'm i'm doing very very well com- by comparison to most people on earth i just i'm like my brain feels like it's expanding exponentially every day so i'm trying to keep up i'm trying yeah. to discover what brand of sleep you have to partake in every night to keep up with all of the learning that's happening every day <laughs> i don't know what it is but i'm trying yeah, and and also as an activist, I think there's always this kind of underlying feeling of guilt of never doing enough. Mm-hmm. And so I think that keeps all of us up at night where we're just wondering mm. how can we be more effective? And also, I don't know if you experienced this, but when you, and I'm not complaining about it, it's just an interesting thing to negotiate with, which is that when you speak out for one thing, then people start expecting you, asking you and expecting you to speak out about everything my DMs mm. are wild. My DMs are truly just things like I'll post a picture of my dog and someone will write, truly, I have this screen grab. So cute. Please condemn India. That's it. That's all, that's all, all she wrote in the fucking DMs. I, I, I was like, she hasn't told me why, like what I'm supposed to do. And, and, and just to use the picture of my dog to pivot straight into that. I respect just the, all the of directness. India? Just all of India. I have to condemn it all. Um, but my dog is cute. So I just wonder, is that what your DMs look like? Or is this just happening to me? Uh, no, I think it's only happening to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, um, I have the kind of the opposite problem where like, because I spoke out about, uh, queer issues, mm-hmm. I'm always called on about queer shit. And then like, people don't really know how to talk to me about anything else. And so I've just kind of been like, wholly focused on BLM and wholly focused on like making stuff. And then occasionally I'll be like, oh, by the way, it's Pride Month or by the way, it's National Coming Out Day or whatever. And every day should be coming out day. So I'm like, I have the opposite problem where people are like, 
how do we talk to you about like not being trans, you know? And I'm like, we can talk about your breakfast if you want. We don't have to only talk about queer (laughs) shit. Well, I do want to talk to you about that. But as we've already discussed, I have plenty of other things also because you have just lived such an interesting life and you meet so many kind of intersections of what make us interesting and what give us character in your very short existence on this earth, considering how much you've lived, how much you've done. And I think that there are so many things that I've learned from listening to you and reading you. And uh, in fact, uh, it's funny, I don't think we've ever discussed this, but how you and I met, do you remember how we met? Uh, Yeah, and it's a story that I used to tell with great relish and zeal before I realized (laughs) that you were the girl in the dress that I was talking about. Okay, so just just to be clear, just to be clear, we were both auditioning for the same role. Yes. That's what happened. So we met, we were down to the final few. Maybe it was in the final two or three, and it was me versus Ayo. This is 2014 (laughs) or something, 2015. It was years ago. You tell the story. (laughs) Well, I was, I walked into this place. It was, there were three of us left. Yeah. And I remember sitting in a chair next to this like gorgeous, incredibly intelligent black woman who was also up for the thing. And I was like, okay, well, first of all, I'm done. Like that, you know, then as I used to tell it, this beautiful, tall, funny, like Indo-British glamazon comes out of the room. And I was like, there's no world in which the like spindly, skitty, pencil neck Jewish trans kid from New York gets the job against that person. It just doesn't happen in the world. And then I got the job. It fucking happened! (laughs) (laughs) Oh my word! I was thrilled for you because I just really, I properly just fell in love with you that day. And we were just, we were rooting for each other so much. We were so supportive towards one another in that waiting room. Um, And you were enjoying... It was very positive. Yeah, it was so positive. It was so the opposite of what you hear audition rooms are normally like. We just couldn't stop chatting to each other. And then I, I got interrupted to be called for the audition. But I'm thrilled for you. I've forgiven you. I want to start off by talking about your extraordinary childhood. Extraordinary in lots of good and lots of testing ways. Would testing you be, is a would very it, choice would, word. Would it be comfortable to, <laughs> would it be, uh, would you be comfortable talking to me about this? Sure. Tell sure. me what young Io <clears throat> was like growing up in New York City in the 80s, which was arguably one of the most, it was such and a moment of awakening, from everything I've read, it was such a moment of awakening for America, what was happening in New York, but also it was quite mm. a terrifying place to live for some people, mm. considering everything that was going on back then. Yeah, I grew up on the same block. The Bowery Hotel is now on the block. I'm putting you on some books so that I can see you better without looking like a hunched over. Okay. Um, I So the Bowery Hotel used to be the gas station where I would get like, radioactive vindaloo in the middle of the night with my mom when she was like coming home from whatever off 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 broadway shit she was doing and uh on the corner opposite that was a salvation army group home for boys Mm -hmm. and then directly across from our building was a 700 man men's shelter for homeless and mentally disturbed men and uh 
that was like the, those are like the two pieces of bread that my life was sandwiched between. So you can imagine like the scale of a mental illness and mm-hmm. the just like complete immersion in addiction and poverty at all times. And also like our whole block was all low income housing. So it was all section eight housing and like everyone on the block was Puerto Rican or Dominican or black. So I didn't grow up in like the fancy, like the kids who grew up in the East Village and I have these jokes now where I'm like, oh, well, you grew up on the other side of a mile because like nobody grew up. Very few people grew up the way that I did. There's a couple of people without being a name dropping tool bag who I'm sure we have in common who are like, I'm a native New Yorker too. And I'm like, you went to private school and I grew up in like a fucking bucket of syringes. But um, yeah, the Hells Angels headquarters was on the next block. And like the cops called my, my block, the asshole of the universe. So like, (laughs) I thought I was the asshole of the universe. (laughs) That's so weird. The cops must not use Twitter. (laughs) it was rough man it was a whole different it was a whole different universe and it was like I went to public school in the West Village you know like I went to elementary school on the corner of gay and gay basically it was like the 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 annual gay pride parade would come right past my elementary school and my my idea of like my one of my first money-making schemes was to sell lemonade at the gay pride parade you know so like there's no like we would go to Wigstock when I was like seven, six, seven. So like my immersion was always like, I always say like kids are just hardwired based on what they grow up surrounded by and what you consider normal is just what you've been exposed to. And the things that I considered normal and was exposed to were like six foot four men in heels who would like, they're not out there being like, I need a safe space or I need you to use the correct pronouns. They're like, bitch, I will put my stiletto through your eyeball if you try to disrespect me or make me feel threatened. So like, yeah, the world the world that I grew up in was like a very raw, very different New York than $35 brunch specials and like the 7-Eleven that is now around the corner from my mom. My mom is like still lives there and is not happy. <laughs> like <laughs> Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, very, very gentrified. I guess one could say, uh, one should say. I, um, yeah. I remember reading something where you were talking about the fact that if growing up the way that you grew up, you weren't uh, in drag or queer or an activist or a performance artist, then you were considered a weirdo and an outlier. Anything like quote yeah. unquote traditional, and you were considered strange and <laughs> almost otherwise. That was is. <laughs> I like in my book, I think I referred to it as like flypapers for flypaper for weirdos or flypaper for something. It was like that block in particular and like the surrounding radius of all the homeless shelters on the Bowery was just where everyone on earth went because they were too weird to be somewhere else. So if you were the strangest kid in class in Kentucky or the queerest person in Alaska or whatever, you went to New York City and you somehow landed because we had CBGBs right around the corner. My godmother, Nan Golden's studio was also around the corner. Basquiat was on the next block. Keith Haring was down the street. It was like everybody was right there in this like really intense thing. And also everybody was also addicted to all kinds of shit. And then AIDS hit and everybody started dying. So there was this cacophony of poverty, 
high creativity and art and music and like the invention of no wave, the invention of punk, the invention of all this culture. And then the disruption of like, you know, Reaganomics and policing started to really crack down and like, it just got really violent and really ugly. And a lot of people died and most people were there because they chose to be there because they were coming from somewhere else. And not that many of us were like born into it, which is always like, it, it's like being strapped to a rocket, like being strapped to a bomb. You're just like shot out of my mom's womb at like, she's already playing the guitar (laughs) yes just fucking rocking at like my mom's whole thing was i don't want to raise a shy kid so they took me to limelight and like wrapped me in a blanket and put me on the table sorry one of the classic new york clubs oh cool like before i was two weeks old you know and so how do you feel like that impacted you? Because those are the most formative years of your life. The first 10, I mean, they mm-hmm. say the first thousand days in particular, but, you know, that first decade is so formative. How did that, I mean, did that did that bring kind of drug or alcohol influence into your life? Did it bring mental health issues? Or did it bring this feeling of just radical acceptance? Because I know you've spoken about the fact that when it comes to your gender, your identity, your sexuality, everything, the while your parents were not perfect, that was something that they handled really brilliantly. Was it my your parents like, radical would acceptance? Love this. Uh, yes. My parents would love your assessment of their uh, <laughs> less than perfection. Um, yeah. My, my father is like a radical in every way. He's a radical intellectual. He's read every book you've ever heard of. He's studied every historical movement. He knows every revolution. He knows the the architecture of every social movement that's ever happened. He knows all about every cultural shift. He's, he's just a, he's human Wikipedia and nothing is ever radical or weird enough for him. So everything I've ever written, I send it to him and I'm like, what do you think? And he writes me back, well, it's just, I've seen this before or it's not weird enough or it's, and I'm like, I'm not trying to always break the system. Like my existence breaks the system. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would like to have some friends. Sometimes I would like to eat normal food. Sometimes I would like to just like listen (laughs) to a fucking pop song. Yeah. Be happy for like five (laughs) minutes. But he, um, the two of them exist completely outside of any systems. So on the one hand, the way that it formed me, he left. He he became a heroin addict when I was four and he left until I was 18. He went to Europe to be a stage designer, high functioning addict, but like, mm-hmm. you know, and she was also a high functioning addict, which both of them being checked out into addiction um, lent itself to the formulation of a, so I, I refer to it as like a superpower, you know, like a, there are traumas that come with that. And there are also, um, self-sustaining superpowers. Yeah. Yeah. There's survival mechanisms and there's also, um, an ability to read other people's like limbic output that you don't have unless your survival depends on it. And like, if somebody is erratic or violent or unpredictable as a child, your early development, you learn how to like predict what version of them is coming through the door because you literally could get swatted out of the way or burned or, you know, whatever. So as an adult, I've had to do a tremendous amount of work to contend with 
the PTSD that I have and the traumas of all of those things. But that work in turn has made me a more self-aware, more caring, more cautious person and like more measured. So like when I get into relationships with people now or friendships with people now, I'm spending time with people because I want to, not because I'm like, I need something from people anymore because I've been forced to do the work to like dismantle all of my traumas and figure out what health is. So that was a side effect of growing up with them, but also like, so when you say that they're high functioning addicts, but also you are having to deal with the fallout of their addiction, is it the fact that they were just emotionally checked out rather than physically, you know, like the the typical portrayal of addiction that we see in film or in documentaries is something that's very extreme where someone cannot function at all. And so yeah. would you say that it's more of a kind of emotional checked out it's like a, a negligence? Yes. Yeah. The especially with heroin addiction, there's this myth of like the gutter junkie yeah. being the only junkie. And I think that it's also really damaging for a lot of people because they can't recognize that what they're looking at is addiction because somebody's not face down in a gutter. Yeah. Whereas I think most addicts are what we would refer to as high functioning because they're drinking, you know, a shot of whiskey to get through their three o'clock meeting or they are, you know, smoking weed to the dome all day long to get through their like arduous work schedule or whatever. Like that is still high functioning addiction. And in my parents' case, it was um, narcissism, emotional withdrawal. And also my mom has some like mental health stuff going on around like food and things that you talk about all the time, you know, like her body image is really, really skewed. And that caused her to not really eat very much. She was like a really devoted actress and showgirl and dancer. And still to this day goes to dance class every single day, despite having had a hip replacement and needing another one. She rides her bike only, does not ever sit down, you know, doesn't do that as a practice. It's like her religion is to just like be active constantly. But as a child that resulted in like our fridge was filled with strange Chinese herbs and like our electricity was off most of the time. So food wasn't a thing and playdates weren't a thing because she was a hoarder. So like no electricity, no food, being forced to go to auditions and dance class. I was going to eight dance classes a week, most of my entire life mm. and being pushed into acting and pushed into um, if you're, if you don't become famous and you don't become a celebrity, you you failed and like life is worthless. That kind of mentality is very abusive and it gives you a really skewed false sense of what's important. And also I was starving. So between acting all the time and not going home until like 12, one o'clock at night, because I'm like in some fucking bullshit off-Broadway version of Oliver where like I'm playing Oliver Twist for the sixth time for some like, like... I can even tell you about the dentist who did the lighting in one of the shows who examined my teeth. Like the stories are so deep, but then you don't get home till one in the morning. You wake up at, you know, eight to go to school. You haven't eaten any dinner. You're at school. You're falling asleep. It's just like, it cycles into itself. And before you know it, you're like hollowed out eyes and hungry and, and sick. I was sick all the time. So yeah, there's that side of it. I understand. That makes sense. PTSD makes complete sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 
You've had such an interesting journey through gender and through identity, Like the amount of articles I found where, you know, because you've been talking so openly and sharing your life with the public for so long, and you've also mm. been, you've existed publicly for so long because you were a child actor in mm. particular, uh, I found so many different kind of iterations of IO, so many different kind of moments of your identity where it's where I, I mean, let's start with the fact that at the age of six, you told your parents that you were a boy mm. and you knew that you were a boy. And so you lived as a boy and acted as a boy, as in not in the world, as in you literally got acting roles where you played a little boy and the people who hired you didn't know until maybe now. That, they were, that that you were a young trans kid. They had no Correct. idea. They thought they had cast a cis boy. And this went on until you were 14 years old? I and didn't play you, a girl until I was 17. You didn't play a girl but until yes. you were 17, but around 14 is when you decided that actually you wanted to, now that you had kind of hit puberty and your body was changing, you wanted to just, in order to solidify your own understanding of gender, is that correct? That that's why you decided to try existing as a woman? Well, I had been um, taken away from my mom by the government for neglect and sent to oh. live with my dad. What age and did I that happen at? 12. 12, right. Yeah, I got myself, I've switched to a, a different school, to a middle school. And um, they were like, they had gender segregated locker rooms for gym class. And I just had a meltdown. Like the first day, sports was my religion. Sports was the thing. I found solace in basketball every day. It was like, just the thing that I did every day. And so the first week at that new school, I went to the gym class and the the guy was like, well, go to the locker room and change. And I was like, I'm already changed. And he was like, well, go to the locker room anyway. And I was like, well, uh, 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 and I was like, I can't go in the boys. And he's like, go in the boys, you're a boy. And I was like, I can't cause I, uh, and then he's like, well then go in the girls. And I was like, I can't cause, uh, and it just was like complete hysterical meltdown. So they sent me to the guidance counselor and she was the first person who was like, she started asking me, you know, poking around about all the usual things. And then at some point she was like, can I ask you what your home life is like? And I just like made the conscious decision to tell her the truth, even though I knew it was going to be a disaster. And she basically was like, well, we can call the Bureau of Child Welfare, but there's no turning back from that or, 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 or. And I was like, call him. I want to get out of here. And she did. And that precipitated like this whole crazy chain of events that resulted in me living in a very small, idyllic, strangely clean town in Germany in the middle of the Black Forest with my dad, who I didn't know was on heroin until later. Christ. Mm. <laughs> oh my God. We need several episodes. There's just, there's so... I have so many things that I want to pick you up on or talk about, and I don't even know where to begin. Thank God you've written so many books. <laughs> Thank God you're going to continue writing. There's so much to talk about. Jesus Christ. Sorry. Um, no, I don't mean to say that. And like, I've I've also had a pretty sensationally like wild childhood. So I think that's also yeah. like part of me that's like, oh my God, you'd like, it It yeah. does happen and other people do survive. It does. Um, but also yeah. just, you've been through so much. And yeah. I mean, before we get into the, the gender stuff, I, I do think it's just so, it's so powerful to have someone come on and just talk so candidly about what it's like to have fucked up parents, because we, we carry so much shame randomly around our parents mm. and what our family life was, suppo was supposed to be like. And there's so much 
uh, media that conditions us to believe that there's only one sort of family that you can really survive and thrive mm. from. Which and almost no one has. No one has. And we don't yeah. talk about it to each other. And we we fake having great relationships with our parents, etc. We just don't tell the truth. And I think it's so important. You know, I'm someone who's been very vocal about the fact that there have been times where I've cut off my entire family for years mm -hmm. at a time mm -hmm. because that's what I needed to do to survive and to mm -hmm. recover from my childhood. And so I think it's, I really admire you for how open you are. How, how are your parents with how open you are <laughs> how does everyone else cope <laughs> i think we're all wondering uh, well it's uh it's had its moments um i called my parents when i first you know i, I when i was 27 it was someone else's idea for me to write a book about my childhood it was not my idea to write a book about myself at mm -hmm. like less than 30 um and I called both my parents and was like, are you guys on board with this? Because if, and my, my philosophy was if I'm going to air your dirty laundry, I'm going to air my own too. Cause it's either you're honest or you're not. And mm -hmm. I, I was no peach either, um, in a different way, but I, they, they said they were on board because luckily for me, both of my parents value creativity and art more than anything in the world mm -hmm. and that they neither of them has ever been to therapy or any kind of recovery program or anything like that. And I think that they're both of their method of uh, growing and healing in the world is through art and creative things. So they were both like, oh, I back you. And then I don't think either of them really understood what that was going to mean. So I gave my manuscript to my mom. I opened the, my book with a letter to my mom because I knew that this was going to be an excruciating lampooning of her mm -hmm. publicly. And I wanted the tone to be set in the book that this is not um, an indictment of my mom. This is not meant to be a Joan of Arc situation. This is not about vilifying the woman, the matriarch, and, and burning your mother so that you can thrive. This is mm. not what this is about. This is me telling my story, and there is also a backstory to this, which I then made a podcast about because the love of my mom's life was murdered three years before I was born, and I was an accidental byproduct of her grief fling, and that can't be erased when assessing how or why something was so bad for me. She was suffering immensely, and so mm -hmm. I made a point of it to go back in and, and make another work about what happened to her to do her justice. Yeah, not to excuse, but to explain. I think that's the most Correct. important thing. Something I'm learning now that I'm an adult and I'm going through all sorts of shit and I'm making all sorts of mistakes. I'm starting to look upon my own parents with more empathy and know that yeah. they were younger than I am now when they had me, or my mother certainly was, and just recognise that, Christ, it must be hard to have kids. That doesn't excuse quite what happened to you and me uh, but uh, and to many people uh, around the world. But it does, I'm definitely, as I'm getting older, starting to understand their humanity and that is just helping me to at least contextualise what happened. Because even if you yeah. can't justify it, even if you can't take away the pain or the trauma, I think being able to explain something to yourself to contextualize it helps you remove a your own responsibility in the situation sometimes because we blame ourselves as children for everything that happens to us and everything that happens in our household and everything that happens to our parents marriage um so i think it absolves you of the blame but i also think it i don't know it just i think knowledge is such great power and i think understanding is such great power and i think that in itself can create an armor for us 
I feel stronger for everything mm. that I understand in this world. And so right. I I really I I admire your honesty, but I also I think it's really, really wonderful that you have presented your mother as a whole human who existed before the time of your birth. Because we always forget to do that. We forget that they are their own human with their own traumas, their own bad pe- bad childhood, all this shit that they turn up with, all this luggage that they turn up with that we have to unpack, I think is That's really... very apt a wild ride. I also think, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but I'm also like a, a quite a detached person. Like mm. a, a, so, I mean, from everything I've seen on your social media and everything on social media is true. So everything, <laughs> none of it is a lie. None of it is a facade. Social media is a documentary of truth. And I need that to be known. <laughs> um, Thank you for you clearing like that up very, for me. You seem like a very happy, loving, emotionally connected person. I mean, your fucking tag as and your uh, your name yeah. on Instagram is Io loves you. So I've always <laughs> looked at you as uh, as a sort of... Um, icon of love <laughs> that I can't that I can't yes. relate to that I cannot relate to at all because I'm quite a detached person. So the reason that I sometimes wonder if I overcame all of my childhood trauma uh, the way that I have is partially because I some part of me switched off as a child and just made it through and st- stayed switched off until my late twenties. Did that happen to you or have you just, you just beat the fucking system? Do you just beat the game? No, 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 no. The game whooped my ass. The game kicked my ass. Because we're all meeting you right now at like the most evolved, the most loving, (laughs) just the most happily married. uh, I'm having a great time. Traditionally like thrilled (laughs) and successful writer (laughs) and photographer and actor and everything. So I'm having a good time but i will tell you that my good time now comes on the back of a lot of pain mm-hmm. a lot of pain and that pain i mean i don't have any shame around it so i'll tell you exactly what happened which is that like for i mean okay there's one thing which is being trans and yes to answer your previous question at 14 living with my dad in germany i thought oh maybe the key to being normal and having friends is to not be hiding this secret all the time. I had a crush on a girl for the first time and invited her over to watch a movie. And she was so hot. Oh my God, she was so hot. And it's weird for me to think that now about a 14-year-old. But whatever. At the time, I was just like losing my mind over this person. I couldn't believe she was in my house. And I spent the entire time like huddled up on the end of the couch. Because she thought you were... She thought I was a cis boy. Right. And if she had figured it out or if she had touched me, so I couldn't do anything. So I just was like, and the the pain of that, of like becoming a sexual being and like wanting to touch people and wanting to kiss someone you have a crush on and then realizing if they get anywhere near me, she's going to like, I don't know, smell it on my skin that I'm a born female or something. I didn't know what the fuck, but I was just like, it was traumatic. So I was like, I'm going to try this other way that the whole world tells me is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I then entered into 14 years of this absolute embarrassing facade of like I went from like when I first showed up in England I had cornrows okay and I went to boarding school in England after Germany okay I had cornrows I was wearing uh uh cargo sweatpants with one leg pulled up because that's what the drug dealers in Harlem did oh my god blasted Biggie out of the front window. And I mean, like, we're talking like mansion on a hill in the middle of Hampshire, in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Like to a (laughs) fucking 
T. And if I could have grown his shitty little pencil beard, I would have. <laughs> like with great relish and joy. So this is you now, like at this time, presenting as a cis woman, but with the cornrows. This was me. The- this was the first step towards trying. So I basically the first day that I decided I'm going to try to be a girl, I said to my dad, can I just grow my hair out in the back so that it gets long and keep the front short and wear the back up until it's long and then put it down and look like a girl? And he was like, that is not how hair works. No, that's that is a mullet. Not, that's how the mullet does. exactly what he said. <laughs> yeah. It was like, we don't do mullets in this family. We can do everything else, but not that. Yeah. So <laughs> I decided to uh, dress like a boy until I presented as a girl. My understanding of gender was so interesting and, and stupid, but I was like, as long as my hair is short, I want to wear boys clothes, but I'll tell people that I was born female. So I went to boarding school and looked like a boy, looked like this little Kevin Federline, but was in the girls' dorms and was telling people, oh, I was born female. And it was very confusing and very weird. And then I gradually got more feminine. And by the time I got kicked out of boarding school and sent back to New York to live with my mom again, I was wearing like mini skirts and bathing suits while skateboarding and had hair down to my ass. My hair was longer than yours. Mm. And it was like... This embarrassing performance of hyper hyper femme cis stereotype. Yeah. But I look like I was in drag and I look like a really bad drag queen, like a really poorly executed teen drag queen who was also like fucking all these boys and like insistent that I was straight, which is like, you can imagine how that went, you know? God, it just sounds like a just prison of shame, just shame around everything. Yeah. And so much confusion and so much, so, so much uh, concern with what other people identify you as, as uh, what other people are comfortable with, what other people will accept you for. And do you reckon that comes from like, I guess, feeling not terribly accepted, like you were accepted in one way and a really profound way by your, your parents, but you didn't feel kind of fully welcomed in because it's very hard for addicts to welcome anyone in because they're not really in their own bodies. So you were just Correct. looking for family everywhere you looked, everywhere you went. And so you just I don't know for why I've been paying a therapist. I could have just called you <laughs> all these years. Shut up. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you more about this, um, but we're going to go to a quick break first. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know, you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally. And they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal 
that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Oh yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. And how the break's over. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Love it. So, okay, so I'm just going to get the timeline down. And this isn't uh, for the sake of being a pedant. I just want to understand. So you... Identify as a girl until six, and then after at six, you recognize that you are a boy, and so then that's until 12, or was it 12 or 14? It was 12, but I'm going to stop you there and tell you that I did not identify as a girl until six. I just was a kid who was a boy who thought that everyone else knew that I was a boy. And then people were like, are you a boy or a girl? And I was like, oh, I'm a boy. It was quite a poignant moment, wasn't it? When you were six years old, you wanted to play ball with some kids and they said no because you were a girl and then you went and shaved your head and you're showing me a picture right now. I see that little boy. (laughs) I see that cute little boy. Um, And then went through a a moment of performing kind of cis, hetero, uh, the second act of your life. Mm-hmm. And then what age was it that you finally felt comfortable to no longer feel the need to perform your gender and identity for others? So that was where the other part of your question um, comes in of did I game the system, which is that that whole time, I think, between like 14 and 28, mm-hmm. like another 14 years of performing womanhood performing first straightness then bisexuality then lesbianism it all always felt wrong and it always felt off and it always felt like I was I I mean like my back is permanently changed from like hunching like this for the first you know 28 Mm. 30 honestly I'm 34 now I had top surgery in December so like 34 years of hunching and when I was 27 I had been dealing with undiagnosed anxiety and PTSD my whole life. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what anxiety was. I didn't know. I thought I was like, I just became this like overachiever. I'm going to work for the New York Times at 24. I'm going to like 
start a magazine at 18. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And just like, look at this and look at that. And it's all externalized destruction. But meanwhile, I didn't know how to use a fork and knife till I was 13. I didn't know what I liked to eat till I was in my mid twenties. I didn't know what kind of music I liked till I was in my mid twenties. Like I just never took a moment to even figure out who I actually was. What clothes do I feel comfortable in? Because the idea of feeling comfortable in my body, both from being trans, but also the experience of growing up in such a trauma, trauma based high tension scenario means that there was no time to figure out what I liked. And if you don't have any tastes, you can't ever calm yourself down because you can't ever be like, I'm going to just go for a walk or I'm going to go get some soup because it makes me feel better. You don't know who you are. So I just mm-hmm. was in this constant frenetic spin. And I basically um, I had a, a spasm, a back spasm. I had to go to the emergency room in the middle of the night because from stress because I wasn't sleeping and I was having these panic attacks every night that would last three and four hours. And I had no idea what was going on. And finally, it just crashed and burned. My fiance cheated on me and I, it just like, it was just the thing that broke the camel's back. And I went into the darkest hole. I call it the summer of doom because it was just the darkest hole that you can, you know, go into, or I can go into at least. And it was, I wanted to die. I was suicidal. Mm -hmm. I, I called, first I called the suicide hotline and they, this woman picked up who was like, hello, this is a national suicide like, How can I help you? And I was like, no. And like hung up and then I <laughs> called the Trevor project and was like, spent 45 minutes on the phone with this woman. And I was just like, st- I was in a very fancy house that a friend had lent me in LA. And I remember sitting in this palace, looking around being like, if everything I see is darkness right now, despite being here, mm-hmm. what does that say about mental health? And I talked to this woman. I remember staring at my feet for the whole conversation. And then at some point, she like completely talked me off the ledge, totally saved my life. And I said, what's your name? And she said, Tiffany. And I was like, I know that that's your like suicide hotline stripper name, but like, can you tell me your real name? (laughs) And this poor woman was like, my name is Tiffany. To this day, I'm always like, shout out Tiffany. You've like, actually my just dad. gone bright red just talking <laughs> about it again. <laughs> you look like a beetroot. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, this is supposed to be a podcast. <laughs> hey, look, this is our way. There's no shame. We love beetroots. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's so funny. That's such a funny. That's such yeah. a funny moment. I, I love a, an awkward um, moment in the midst of darkness. I'll never forget this one terrible moment I had with a friend who was incredibly, incredibly suicidal and mm. on the phone to me. And I was the only person they'd called, the only person who knew that they were struggling. And the words I heard them say were, as they were crying, just, I just feel so alone. I feel like I don't have anyone. And by accident, I dropped my phone and it was a landline. So it just oh. fell. Oh. <laughs> and it looked like I'd hung up and abandoned him in its lowest and darkest moment. Um, thank God I managed to get back in touch with him soon enough. And he laughed and it actually broke a lot of the darkness that night. But Christ, the feeling of panic as you're waiting for them to pick up was just but it, was, job, it, it created like a great break in the tension thank god <laughs> <laughs> okay, i'm so, always here yeah, to laugh on. at myself but 
No, that was basically, that was the long way of saying that uh, precipitated me being like, oh shit, okay, if I'm going to survive life, I never thought I was going to live past 35 and I'm turning 35 in two months. So pray for me well if done. you will. But well done. I uh, was basically like, if I'm going to make it and I'm going to have any semblance of joy in my life and I'm not going to be run by the demons that ride on my back, like some kind of unknown rider, then I'm going to have to rip my emotional plant out of the ground and chop all the roots off and replant it in fresh soil. Mm-hmm. And I stopped drinking, started going to Al-Anon, started going to therapy, started studying Buddhist philosophy and started writing a book, first person present memoir, like not like, and then when I was eight, you know, I fell down the stairs. It's like, I am falling down the stairs. So I had to literally rewalk through all of my traumas and address all of this shit. So it was this like two year period. And during that, I started scanning my mom's photo collection from when I was a kid and she'd taken like, like that picture that I showed you, she's taken like 2000 photographs of me Mm -hmm. from zero to whenever I left 13. And I realized that the two year old that I saw flexing at the pool was a boy and he'd always been a boy. And there was never any question about that. And the only thing that interfered with that was the outside world. And I think when you go through that kind of like, uh, you know, burn the house down to rebuild emotional experience, mm-hmm. anything that feels dishonest really sticks out. And I just couldn't deal with lying anymore to myself. And I couldn't deal with my own shame around it. And I, it, it's still to this day mind blowing because I was at that point five years into photographing 10,000 queer people. I photographed at that point probably 7,000 people, mm-hmm. many of whom were trans, and it still hadn't clicked. And I grew up the way that I did, surrounded by trans people, and it still hadn't clicked that like, this might be you, bro, you know? So it took me till I was 28 to even start experimenting with male pronouns because I had so much fear of being unlovable. Mm. It was, that's what it really came down to was like, will I be monstrous? Will I be uh, a, a pariah? Will I be a pervert? Because that's what the whole world tells you that you are. Yeah, I fucking understand the reticence to be able to own that existence and own that identity because of the way that our world still to this fucking day continues to treat people who are trans. But I'm so glad that you've been able to find a support system that pushed you all the way through. And also, it has been fascinating to watch it because I became like minorly obsessed uh, after we met uh, at that audition. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've been like consistently watching you uh, and watching the evolution of the way that you not only discuss yourself, but the way that you discuss everything and then have just Mm. been very moved by the openness with which you have used your your social media to take people through your transition including like the insecurities around your voice which is now becoming Mm. deeper and deeper and so you know and you wear your scars with such pride and I I remember the before and after photographs and just how you've documented this wonderful idyllic Hollywood-esque not actual Hollywood because Hollywood is disgusting and full of like really, really traumatised people. But the, the, the Hollywood romance, uh, the billboard love that is what appears to be your marriage and your 
unbelievably beautiful wife and how in love you both seem. And it's just been incredible to watch this journey of, of your evolution. And it's, this is such a personal, this has been such a personal seven years in your life. And it's yeah. remarkable that you've shared every step of the way with other people. Does that ever feel too much sometimes? Um, <clears throat> you know, the thing about transitioning is that like, I think that the idea to people, and I can't say it's a universal because all of us are different, but mm-hmm. like my experience of it is that I think people think that you are becoming something new, almost like you're putting a new suit on. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's taking the wrong one off. So mm-hmm. it's more like I've been like, removing the layers of things that made no sense. And the thing that has always been underneath is now just visible. So I'm, it's almost anticlimactic for me because Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, well, here I am finally, you know, now we just don't have to talk about it anymore because here I am. So the, the trans, like all the fear about shame, all the fear about, I was so scared to not have a dick. I was like, how how can you like stand in your, my, my mom has said horrible things to me about trans shit. She said to me once, um, before I transitioned, she was like, you know, there's no point in you doing that anyway, because no matter how many hormones you take, your hair is just going to fall out and you're going to get fat and you're still not going to have a dick. So you're never going to be a real man anyway. You know? And like that kind of shit just, it yeah. gets in there and it convinces you that there you're going to be less than. And I don't feel a single ounce of less than. And I like, in 2012, I did a TED talk about uh, my photo project and it was called mm-hmm. 50 Shades of Gay. And it was all about how sexuality is a spectrum. And the the outpouring of feedback after that from people who... At that point, there was nothing else on TED.com about homosexuality or gender. There was one other thing that was a guy who was like, it, the talk was about the myth of the homosexual, the myth of the gay agenda. There was literally nothing else. It was unheard of to talk about that shit on TED. So every queer kid in the closet, wherever in the world, watched that talk and wrote to me afterward and mm. was like, thank you for showing yourself. Thank you for just like being visible so that I can like see someone like myself. And even that MTV job that I beat you for. Uh, Oh, sorry. I must've forgotten. Thank you for reminding me. Um, Just in case, (laughs) just in case. I remember being in a diner before I did that. And I was like, why would I go on MTV? And I was talking to my friend who was the waitress and she was like, you have to do it. Because when I was growing up, there was nobody like us on TV. And there's some kid in Oklahoma who's going to see you on MTV and is going to go, oh, I'm okay. I'm normal because that person is on TV. And I was like, oh, fuck. All right. You know, if I can beat Jamila Jamil, then I'll take the job. <laughs> well, weirdly, like, I've, I've watched that TED Talk a lot of times. Really? And I want to quote a line back from it that always really moved oh. me, which is when you said that familiarity is the gateway drug to empathy. Mm. And I, mm. and I think that kind of embodies everything you've done with your career is that you are presenting something that people can become familiarized with. And yeah. that so perfectly encapsulates everything about around representation and around just being able to yeah. put people in front of what they, what they fear the most. And, you know, in that talk, I remember you mentioned that, that people often fear 
people that they've never even met. Like they haven't met a lot of the people that they are the most afraid of, the people that they are voting against the rights of. They don't know any people like that. And so, you know, a large portion of your work, and I do want to get to talk about that in a second, is, you know, not only your own self-representation work and your own writing and your own biographies in order to familiarise yourself so people can at least kind of find that empathy, take that gateway drug to empathy, but also you are you are putting the lives of other queer people and their humanity and you're photographing them raw without any special effects, with no Photoshop, just in their truest form, in the outfits in which they feel the most themselves. You capture their humanity in this project that you have been working on for a decade called Self-Evident Truths and you have photographed over 10,000 people and we got to watch on Instagram as you unwrapped it as it turned up at your house in hardback. Will you tell me what this project is? Yeah, thank God it wasn't over 10,000. It was only 10,000 because 10,000 is so fucking many and I don't know why. Like, <laughs> Oh my God. The last days I've been dealing with the database and like putting it all online because something that big, no one else can deal with the minutia of because they can't understand it. So I have to do all the back end shit. And I'm just like, at least four times a day, I will text someone, FaceTime someone or send them a video message or my wife and be like, why did I do this? Like, why did I think this is a good idea? I, um, my self-evident truth is a photographic document of 10,000 people in all 50 states of this country who identify as anything other than 100% straight or cisgender. Mm-hmm. So 1% is enough, was enough until literally last month to get you fired in 37 states of this country. The math, all the, like, if I were into numerology, I'd be like, oh my God, see, 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 because I started this project in February of 2010. I finished it in February of 2020. There were 100 photo shoots, 10,000 photographs. One month after, or the day, wait, was it? The project is named Self-Evident Truth, which is a line from the Declaration of Independence. I got the book the day before Independence Day. And that month, Finally, the reason why I started it, workplace discrimination laws, all got repealed. So like the the it's all just fucking wild and sometimes the universe mm-hmm. conspires to tell you like you're doing the right thing. But yeah, I spent I uh, spent 10 years traveling to every single state in this country and photographing anyone who felt like that applied to them without asking any qualifications and welcoming every single person in front of my camera and the only thing we did was we went back through every single release form to check that people weren't straight and hadn't misunderstood, which a lot of some people had, or that they were under 18 and could sign the form them. Hashtag straight pride. That, <laughs> a lot of people were like, oh, you're photographing allies. And I'm like, no, girl, this is not, <laughs> not for you. But other than that, every single person who stepped in front of my lens is in that book. So as of now, I have this, it's sitting downstairs. It's wild. It's like a... Like, if nothing else, you can use it as a, a Bible and oh, yeah. defend yourself. <laughs> it's huge. It has all 10,000 photos, and I didn't even know you could put 10,000 photos in a single thing, but some of them are the size of a poster stamp, but, you know, well, sorry. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, for someone, for a kid who didn't want to feel alone, I mean, you've created a Bible of how unalone you are in your experience, how many... I feel too seen. I'm going to go now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, can I ask you a couple of personal questions about the existence of being trans? Would that be comfortable? I know you don't oh, love I don't like talking, talking about, about my personal life. No. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, how do other people uh, receive you? 
I think that um, the feedback I get from people a lot is that they feel safe to fuck up with me, which mm-hmm. is the most important thing to me because I, I believe that like teaching is not done by shaming. And I, I agree with a lot of things that you post all the time about cancel culture and the way that we uh, dismiss people and shame people rather than educate people and allowing room for people to grow and allowing people to come through things. Like when I was 24, 25, uh, my ex big love started dating a trans guy after me. And the things that I said, the jokes that I made because I was so ashamed of myself and so uneducated about what that meant. Like if that stuff were to like, and it's not at all because I'm transphobic. It's because I wasn't aware and I didn't know what I was dealing with and I, in myself or in him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, um, I believe that education is, is best done without shame. And context. I think context is really important. You know, similarly to you with that, I used to slut shame a lot and I started doing that the year after I was raped when I was 22. And so that was just like when I went into this period of anger and I didn't know who to target. And so therefore I was just like, right, women, (laughs) women are near me. I understand women. It's your fault. I didn't know because I was blaming myself for what had happened to me. And so therefore I blamed all of us. Yeah, we misplace, everyone yeah. misplaces trauma and the kind of guillotine that social media has become is very at odds with the natural function of the brain and mm-hmm. the natural natural progression of uh, maturity and growth. And then, you know, on the one hand, you've got people becoming otherworldly famous at 12, 13 years old. And then we hold them to this crazy standard that they can never once say anything fucked up or otherwise. And like, sure, if, you know, Justin Bieber says something fucked on social media, he should be called out and that should be addressed. But like, should we never, ever hear from him ever again? No, you know? So I, I have really tried to build my, I recognize the fact that trans issues are extremely loaded. They're very scary for people. Your average person in the world has no idea what they're dealing with. And also your average person in the world is kind and doesn't want to offend anyone and is not trying to fuck up. They just don't know any better. So my approach, I believe that my best purpose in the world or my my way of being most helpful in the world is to encourage people to grab onto that kernel of kindness and that desire to be good and water it and grow it into a tree of of knowledge and awareness. If you need to read this book, here's this book. And everything that I'm learning and onboarding right now about mm-hmm. anti-racism here, take it. Like, let's do this together. And like learning and growing is not shameful. Learning and growing has to be nurtured. And the process of that means mistakes. A hundred percent. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food service. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
we've had uh, you know a couple of trans women on this show and and you know we we talk about trans women and trans men and people who are gender non-conforming um on i way all of the time but the experience of trans men is one that i think a lot of people don't hear about so much and mm-hmm. would you would you say that you have had a fairly peaceful time within society transitioning do you get pushback from cis women or men or would you say I, that people generally tend to just let you do you? I pass in the world now. So even without a beard, like mm-hmm. as soon as my voice started dropping and I had top surgery, like it was immediate. Every dude, hey man, man, like cis men say man to each other so much in a fucking <laughs> sentence. It's like, yo man, can you pass me the thing, man? Thanks, man. Okay, man. And I'm like, I, I get it. Like, I, I got it. And I don't think they're trying to, like, show me anything. I think it's just genuinely how they talk to each other. But it's yeah. like, immediately, boss, my guy, my dude, you know, and, like, men let each other know, you know? So I think that I have the the immense privilege that I wanted of passing um, for the most part. And I haven't gotten... Only when people are riled up about other things and have an agenda and want to be hateful do they really, like, come for me. But I also haven't exposed myself to the, like, mainstream world in a way where, like, when things get... I shot the Levi's campaign this past uh, Pride season and, um, you know, there's always vomit emojis sprinkled in there. And there's always, like, when when you go broad, you get broad responses. But generally speaking... I, um, pass. So people give me less shit, but my, my negative experience is more to do with the community, like from within the community, going from being, thinking I was a lesbian and having this like really huge, strong sense of community with other people who were lesbians that was gone immediately. Wow. Yeah. Because they don't know what it is. And the fact that like, and you and I talked about this a little bit, but like my having photographed 10,000 people, which to my understanding is the largest single document of a community in history. All right, mate, no need to brag. (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) Already said you're great. You got that job, didn't you? Five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Just chill the fuck out for a second, Aya. I just want to remind you I got that job. (laughs) Just want to remind you, MTV. Uh, okay, yeah, go on, tell us about your single biggest documentation ever. I just think that I have, and one has to quantify this because queer people love to say you have no right to talk about us. But having met that many people, shook that many hands, talked to that many people, it feels absurd to me that we are all meant to be a community that we all fall into Mm -hmm. this one lasso that very clearly exists only in opposition to heteronormativity and cisgenderism. Literally, that's the only other binding agent. Like, what the fuck do I have in common with uh, your average gay person? Not much. What does your average, uh, you know, cis, white, gay, wealthy, able-bodied man have in common with uh, a black trans woman from Alabama. Mm-hmm. What does your average intersex person, most people on the LGBTQIA++, which is the first sign that something is wrong when your acronym is that long. Mm-hmm. Most people have no idea what intersex even is. 
So how does that serve intersex people to be lumped in with this group of people who are meant to represent them who don't even know what they are? Yeah. So when I came out as trans, I was like, holy shit, your average lesbian who I thought was my community because we're supposed to all be LGBTQIA. As I stepped down a rung on the privilege ladder, I realized oh, the vista from up here on this rung is that we are all a community because you can't see how these people are on a floor below you going, I can't fucking get up there. Like, let me up because we don't know. Mm-hmm. They don't know what we are. Do Would you say that those people had felt like betrayed by you in some way? Like you are perhaps even, because this is something that I've heard from a lot, especially, you know, all my male, like all my friends who are trans men, a lot of them have experienced, and you and I spoke about this on the phone, like a lot of them have experienced a pushback from women that they feel abandoned as if you think that men are superior to women and therefore you are abandoning, whereas actually it's like you were, you were born a man. You are who you always were doesn't matter what you were assigned. I had that with my mom. We had an interesting conversation where <clears throat> my mom has not responded well since I came out as an adult as trans at all. She has still to this day will not use the right pronouns. But I know, but she, I know. But as a child, she so she was fine with it when you I were know. a child because she thought, what, she, did she think it was a cute phase back then or has she just yeah. changed her thinking? She, I think she thought, now she has confessed to me that when I was a kid, she thought I was playing a role. Right. She thought it was artistic Which, expression. Yes, that right. I was six and I was living a Marina Abramovich piece. I don't know how she sincerely believes that, but that's what she's said. But when we, like six months ago, I've basically distanced myself from her and been like, I can't, like, if you're going to say all this horrible shit to me, like, I'm, yeah. I'm about to turn, like, I can't. So. She called me, I was leaving New York and I was at the airport with Rachel, my wife, and and she called and she was like, listen, I need you to understand something. I guess I am understanding that you are some kind of third thing. They need a different word for you. And I was like, okay, mom. And she was like, you are the first. And then she like stopped and she said, female born person, which I was like, female born person in our bloodline to own property without the help of a man. And I was, something clicked for me where I realized that she felt an ownership of that with me and a kinship with me on that. And I said to her, I hate to break it to you, but I'm not. And like, I'm sorry to let you down in this regard, but it helped me to understand that There was a, she loved the idea of having a daughter and she loved the idea of her daughter having success and her daughter being powerful and her daughter doing all of these things that I was doing for the first, no one in my family has a mortgage, you know, like it's not a, it's not a thing. My family is like very weird and very outside the system. So they Mm -hmm. don't. So she was very attached to that notion and she's had, she's really struggled with that and like, I think with her, I'm willing to tolerate it because I guess I get the limitations of whatever mental things she's dealing with. But with with other women in the queer community, I won't have it. Like if somebody says any turfy bullshit to me about you, you are leaving the womanhood, the sisterhood or whatever, I'm like, nah. And it's like, 
we will shut that down real quick. I have taken up loads of your time and uh, mm. I'm sorry. And oh my so God. It's been it's ages. Three <laughs> oh, I've had such a great time talking to you. Thank you so <laughs> yeah, much for giving too. me so much of your time. I've really appreciated uh, being able to have this conversation and and being able to talk to someone so openly about things like childhood and of course things like trans issues but also where you went with us about what you've Mm. been through and how you've been able to come out to your fucking idyllic life Uh, (laughs) I I have my struggles too no I know I'm joking I'm really thrilled for you and it's really fun getting to know you and I'm just Thanks. just really delighted that you're on this podcast today. So everyone should check out Self-Evident Truths. Is there anything else you would like me to tell people about that you have going on right now? They can read my book, Darling Days. They can buy a pre-order signed copy of Self-Evident Truths if they want. Both mm-hmm. of those things are on my website, which is iolovesyou.com. And they should listen to my podcast, The Ballad of Billy Balls. Yes, because that shit is fun. Yes, it's well, it's <laughs> extraordinary. It's an amazing, amazing podcast, and I think that after listening to this, uh, people will want to. Because who wouldn't want to know more about you? And um, before uh, you go, Io, will you quickly tell me what do you weigh? Oh Jesus Christ, one thirty-four. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know. Love. You're going to have to try. <laughs> kindness. Can I weigh kindness? You can weigh anything you fucking want. That's the joy of I uh, weigh. Kindness and kindness and empathy and conversation and laughter. That's what I weigh. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Um, and I will I'll speak to you soon. I'm probably going to call you straight after this. (laughs) 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 All right, loads of love. Bye. Thank you for having me. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's I Weigh. I would also like to thank the team which helps me make this podcast. My producers, Sophia Jennings and Kimmy Lucas, my editor, Andrew Carson, my boyfriend, James Blake, who made the beautiful music you are hearing now, and me for my work. At iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com. And remember, it's not in pounds and kilos, it's your social contributions to society or just how you define yourself in life. And now, we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. iWay recovering from an eating disorder for the past 10 years and learning to accept that every day is going to be a struggle, but I am going to get better at it. I weigh a fiercely protective relationship with my sister who I didn't let um, be affected by my eating disorder and who has tried to educate and teach through all of my failings and struggles in life um, and who's grown up to be such a beautiful human being. I wake up constantly trying to do better and learning to accept the shortcomings that I have now, knowing that one day it will all be worth it. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
Even the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.